Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham, on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. Here we go, here we go, uh, here we go. The Euros are only a couple of weeks away, and already the government is getting spooked, not just about the prospect of giving us back our freedoms, or that there might be some football fans coming uh, to watch things. We've already had Sadiq Khan telling the Scots to stay away from London for the Scotland-England game. Good luck with that, Mr Khan. Uh, But because someone has told them there might be a new Covid variant from Nepal, which happens to be quite near India. I wonder how that could have possibly happened. Meanwhile, of course, the World Health Organization, uh, which is, of course, based in Nepal, WHO Nepal, says this. WHO is not aware of any new variant of SARS-CoV-2 being detected in Nepal. Get this. This is this is where it starts to get ridiculous, right? It's like a comedy turn. The, confirmed, the three confirmed variants in circulation are Alpha, B117, Delta, B16172, and Kappa, B16171. The predominant variant currently in circulation in Nepal... Is Delta. So apparently, the Indian variant is in Nepal. It's not the Nepalese variant, it's the Indian variant. I mean, you know, confused? Why would you be? Meanwhile, we await more news today on which countries might be moving around on the traffic light system of green, amber and red. Unfortunately, all the intelligence on it suggests that they won't be actually adding uh, anyone to the green list. They'll be taking people off it. When will the politicians actually get it? And when will we be able to go anywhere? First up this morning, though, it's Brendan Chilton, the exceptional face of the Labour Party, with his take on what's going on. Plus, I'll be asking him why he's so concerned about China's grip on Africa. I might also ask him, by the way, uh, about the situation with Ollie Robinson. Robinson's shame as racist and sexist uh, posts ruined his debut playing for England cricket. Uh, basically, he wrote a couple of tweets when he was a much younger man uh, in 2012 and 2013, which he's being dragged and hauled over the coals for. I mean, come on, people. Give the kid a break, for heaven's sake. What he said might have not been particularly uh, palatable, but it wasn't the end of the world either, for heaven's sake. 03444991000. Given the weather here, of course, you might think there's no need to bother going abroad for a foreign holiday. 28 degrees at the seaside yesterday, and there were so many people out and about that breweries are apparently in danger of running out of beer. We'll be talking to the people at the front line on just how well our economy is bouncing back thanks to the great weather. Helen Dale is here as well with her take on why we are continuing to fail on the migrant front. 700 people have come to these shores via dinghies across the channel in the last few days. MPs are now starting to demand that the French should be forced to take them back. Why is this becoming such an impossible nut to crack for Priti Patel and the Home Office? And we'll also be finding out exactly what the point of electric cars is after it was revealed you'd only be 100 quid better off 
after three years if you bought one instead of a proper fuel version. Donna Harvey's here as well from the US of A. And Helena Nicklin joins us for the Thursday Club, uh, which is when we taste some rather nice wines uh, in the company of the award-winning TV presenter. 0344 499 1000. You listen to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, let us, without further ado, say a very good morning on a beautiful day. It's still a little bit hazy out there, but rather nice. Brendan Chilton is with the CEO of the Independent Business Network. Brendan, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Loving the hair. Uh, thank you very much indeed. Well, you know, I've, actually, it's not so much the hair as it is the uh, the new um, headphones that I'm wear- not wearing. I'm not wearing headphones anymore. We've moved into the sort of talk radio TV land now. Uh, so now I've just got little things in my ears so that I can hear your dulcet tones without having to have a, <laughs> a bloody great pair of headphones on. Well, I must say, looks good. Very modern, Mike. Thank you very much. I've never been accused of being modern before, but I'll I'll take that as a compliment. (laughs) Now, listen, let's talk first of all, because it's in the news and it's in your neck of the woods, the migrant problem. We've got MPs today calling for the French to take them back because I find it impossible to believe that Priti Patel cannot solve this problem. But she seems completely incapable of doing it. We've now got people coming in, we're told, from Vietnam. Uh, We've got women being sex trafficked across the channel. I mean, it's like a free-for-all, isn't it? Mike, this is, for those of us that live in Kent and near the coast, uh, we know this has been going on for years. Yeah. And it has uh, really picked up the pace uh, in the past few years. And now the weather is better and the sea is calmer. Um, we had the last weekend around 800 people arriving. Frankly, it's a bloody disgrace. Yeah. And it really is bad because you've got people that apply genuinely and go through all the loopholes and fill out all the forms Yet these people are just crossing the channel and it seems, in some cases, being assisted by the French and by our own border force. Uh, It's an outrage. And frankly, the government needs to get a grip on this. The government have said they're going to take back control of our borders. Well, I'd like to see some control because certainly the people of Kent are very frustrated about this. And now it's becoming more of a national story. I'm glad to see MPs uh, finally... Uh, making some noise on this and hopefully we'll get some action from the government. Yes, but I mean, I'm told that as long as we are still members of the European Court of Human Rights, which we are, despite the fact that we've now left the European Union, there's not much we can really do. It's all very well saying, let's make the French take them back. But we can't really, can we? Well, the the, the answer, in my view, is very simple. We leave the European Court of Human Rights. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's very, <you> know, not difficult. <laughs> I mean, you've um, always got you've always got a commonsensical answer. It's extraordinary how <laughs> how you can find that answer in two seconds, but the the whole of this government can't manage to do it in two years. Well, it it, it just requires action, and I think, of course, we support human rights as a country. Of course, we want to see people treated fairly, uh, but when we've got a situation where the whole of the south of England, essentially, and the whole coast of Kent is basically unmanned and uncontrolled, and anyone can come in, it seems, at will. Mm know anything about these people now i'm sure some of them have come from very difficult dangerous and traumatic places when i look around the world there are plenty of places where people could have come from but there are an awful lot of people it seems arriving from countries that are quite far flung you've just mentioned uh vietnam and parts of southeast asia um the government have got to get a grip on this and we cannot have a situation where our borders are just open. We are still, we're told, in the middle of a pandemic. Do we know the health status of these people? Uh, we Do we know if they've got any uh, records or any criminal uh, history? Do mm. we know if any of them are skilled 
Uh, we want people coming to this country that can contribute and help build our economy, particularly after this forced lockdown over the past year. And so, yes, the Home Secretary, she's talking tough, but I want to see less talk and more action. Exactly. Uh, and also, you know as well as I do, Brendan, that, that many of these people are coming as part of massive businesses. You know, these kinds of uh, thousands of pounds are being paid. You know, I was told yesterday by someone in the know, up to £25,000 some people are paying to come uh, by this particular method. And of course, one of the things they're told to do is to rip up any kind of ID that they might have. So actually, all we're doing is taking their word for what they are, where they've come from and what their history is. We have no clue. Absolutely. And I think another question might we need to ask, where are the bloody French in all Sorry, yeah. where are the French uh, in all of this? Right. Um, we have to leave the continent to come to England because of the sea. Uh, why are the French not dealing with this in their own country? Mm. Uh, we paid millions of pounds uh, for border security around Calais, including all the fencing. Anyone, obviously not at the moment, but when you were able to go across to the channel for day trips to France or to go on road trips across the continent, you see the miles and miles of fences uh, around Calais going up the motorways. The British taxpayer have paid for all mm. this. So what on earth are the French government doing, uh, not controlling who's coming in and out of their country and leaving their country? Yes. Uh, it, it is a crisis, uh, Mike, and it's only going to get worse as we go through the summer because uh, the weather is set to hopefully be quite nice uh, for, the, for the next few months. And I think as we go through this, as more and more people arrive illegally, uh, the British people will get quite fed up. We well, are people, very... are, people are very fed up, not least because nobody ever really talks about it. You know, we're about the only radio station that ever mentions it and the only television station that ever mentions it. Nobody else bothers. But it's going on every single day. And when you talk about, by the way, people not being able to go anywhere at the moment, I had a call yesterday from a guy on holiday in Greece, right? He and his family drove down from Yorkshire, I think it was, went through the uh, Euro Tunnel, got to France, right? Did not see a border patrol or a border guard between France and Italy. Drove all the way through Belgium, Germany, Italy, uh, got to Brindisi, got on a, a ferry to Greece. The first time anybody asked them for a passport was in Greece. Well, in that case, Mike, I'm off on holiday. It's <laughs> <laughs> I mean, extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, it's no wonder if they come yeah. in the other way, how easy it yeah. is for them. It, it is amazing. And this one of the big problems, of course, of being in the European Union is you do have this principle of freedom of movement. Um, it seems even though we've left, that principle still applies because our government aren't dealing with this border crisis. But I think we need to add to this. The British people are not a racist nation. We're not a xenophobic nation. We like fairness. Mm. And you've got people from all over the world trying to come to this country fairly, applying for citizenship, applying for temporary status or whatever else they're applying for. And it's costing them loads of money. We like to see those people eventually, if they've got merit, to get here fairly. When you've got illegal crossings happening and no one seems to be doing anything about it, it smacks in the face of British fairness and justice. Right. And really, really infuriates people. And well done to your show uh, and talk radio for continuing to raise this. Yes, thank you. Well, I mean, of course, the reason people want to come here is because it is all of those things. It is a fair country. It is a very uh, good country to raise a family in. It is a wonderful place to live. It is all of those things. But we also have to remember uh, that it won't stay like that if we start letting just anybody in uh, without any uh, care uh, to worry about who they are or what they've done before. Quite right. And the existing accommodation for people that arrive here uh, illegally uh, as asylum seekers or whether people arrive as illegal migrants is less than adequate. Mm. We've got a problem down in Kent, you may know, as a, a Sussex man yourself, uh, the old military barracks yes. uh, on the coast are being used to house these people. They're crammed in, there's not enough room as it is. And so the government 
if they're not going to deal with it at the border, they at least, least need to make sure uh, we've got adequate facilities to process and deal with these people. And frankly, um, with a lockdown where, you know, fewer people are coming in and out of the country uh, because of all these restrictions, one would have thought it would be far easier to allocate more resources to the port of Dover and the Kent coast uh, to deal with this problem. Yeah, absolutely right. Let's talk about another problem that you raised uh, in a piece in The Express this week about Africa and about how the stranglehold uh, that China have put on Africa is now starting to affect not only uh, the rest of the world in particular, uh, but us as a country as well. Yeah, well, the Independent Business Network, which I'm chief executive of, published a report uh, into Britain's potential trading opportunities uh, with sub-Saharan African countries. Of Mm. course, many of them are Commonwealth countries. Uh, And in that report, uh, we highlighted the fact that China and its ally Russia now has got a huge stranglehold on many African economies, uh, much to the disadvantage of those economies. Uh, Unfair contractual arrangements which pile huge debt onto African governments, Um, The Chinese ship over workers from China to do the jobs in Africa instead of employing local populations. They're pillaging the mineral resources of the country and sending it back to Beijing, which is why they're able to now produce so much and export to the West. And it's a real issue. And if Britain wants to maintain its influence in the world, particularly, as I say, with Commonwealth nations, we need to start to counter that by striking those trade deals with African countries and enhancing the existing arrangements we've got. And the West has got to take this very seriously. Yeah. Uh, Do was, we want? Sorry. Sorry, Brandon. <laughs> I was going to say there is this sort of rather insidious side of China's foreign policy, which people don't really know too much about, because my understanding is it's not only Africa where they've done a lot of this, um, you know, sort of trading, but they've also done it in South America and they're doing it also in the sort of Pacific Rim uh, around all sorts of Pacific, uh, South Pacific islands and all that, you know, offering them um, a sort of ferry port which suddenly turns into um, a, a base for, for Chinese Navy ships, you know, and it's, and it's not something that people talk about very much. No, quite right. And China has an initiative called the Belt and Road Initiative, which it claims is to promote free trade and commerce around the world. But coming with that trade and commerce is increasing Chinese control, as you say, military and intelligence presence, uh, government officials being posted to those countries to essentially, you know, use them as puppet governments Mm. for Beijing. And as Britain and the United States are still in lockdown. The Chinese economy is essentially back up and running as it was uh, before the pandemic. We're continuing with all these unnecessary restrictions, piling up more and more debt while China's influence in the world grows. And we've published this report really, first of all, to highlight the opportunities available to Britain outside the EU with trade with African countries, but also also to warn of the risks uh, that face the West generally if we continue to sit back and allow China to increase its malign influence on the world, particularly in the resource and mineral rich continent of Africa. Yes, absolutely right. And just finally, Brendan, let's finish up with a a bit of a a sort of look ahead to June 21st. I mean, it seems to me that there's very, very little um, evidence now that Boris Johnson should not lift all the restrictions on the 21st of June, uh, as he said he would. Uh, You know, all this talk of a Nepalese variant, which the World Health Organization said apparently doesn't exist. It's just the Indian variant. The Indian variant's not doing very much at the moment. Um, It seems as though um, the the weather has kind of played its own part as well. People are out and about. People are having fun. They're in in, in pub gars. And we apparently nearly ran out of beer yesterday. It was so uh, so much fun was being had by people around the country. Um, What's your what's your view on all of that? 
Well, first of all, Mike, we must deal with this serious issue of the beer shortage. Um, we can't <laughs> this country to, to run out of beer. We can run out of anything else, but not the beer. Yeah. I think there are absolutely no reasons uh, for Boris Johnson uh, to stop the lifting of restrictions. Everything should go ahead as planned on June the 21st. Our economy has taken the biggest hit in 300 years. Uh, we're reading now that cancer patients are going through the roof, school children are behind massively and there's not enough money to sort it out. We need to get this country back on, back open and back to normal. And if the government do decide uh, to go back on what they've said, I think the British people will be absolutely furious. The only variant, the only deviant to the plan is the Downing Street variant, yes. which absolutely mingles and fumbles around Shut down Sage, get the economy open. That's what I'd say we need to do. Brendan, those are great words. I'm sure people will be delighted to hear them coming from you. Thank you very much. I'll, I'll leave you with this thought, which has come from Lily, uh, who said, if Brendan Chilton was a lager, he'd be a Carlsberg. And if Labour were full of Brendan Chilterns, I'd vote for them. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, and of course, um, I should have asked him probably about what he made of that Keir Starmer nonsense the other night, but uh, uh, I, I'm pretty sure uh, he wouldn't be particularly complimentary. That was, of course, the Piers Morgan Life Stories version of... Uh, of old Rodders, uh, as he's now become known, Keir Starmer, Rodney Starmer, uh, the name that he absolutely hates. So, of course, the name that I'm going to continue to call him for the rest of time. Now, I've got many, many more things to talk to you about, including, of course, this story uh, that I wanted to mention earlier about Ollie Robinson. Ollie Robinson uh, is a young cricketer, right? He was picked to play for the England team, OK? But he has apparently been hauled over the coals because uh, he made some offensive tweets back in 2012 and 2013, when he was a much younger man. He's a bowler for Sussex. Uh, he was forced to say that he was ashamed, to say that he was embarrassed, because his historic tweets were sexist, racist and Islamophobic. And I mean, apparently now he might be banned from the international cricketing setup. I don't know what sort of person goes all the way back literally eight, nine, maybe ten years to find tweets that somebody might have sent out about something. I mean, who on earth can be bothered to do that, OK? And if he was uh, in uh, a state of misjudgment, if he was in a state of impairment, if he did do something which was, you know, partially wrong, partially offensive, and I've looked at the tweets and they are a little bit offensive, but they're not particularly terrible. And at the end of the day, you know, do we really want to hold everybody up to some ludicrous magnifying glass that examines every single thing that they did from the age of about seven? You know, you once called somebody a name in school, in the playground when you were 15. You once got involved in a fight with someone in a pub when you were 17 and you whacked somebody around the face. I mean, these are not the kinds of things that should stop people playing international sport, are they? Do you seriously think that this is the kind of country that we should be living in? Because I don't. And I want to hear your views on it as well, because I think Ollie Robinson, um, he's not necessarily a superstar yet, but he could well become one. I'm not saying he should be held to a different standard. I'm not saying he should be in some way given permission to be offensive. I'm not saying uh, that if you're in a position of responsibility that you are not treated with a different level um, of, I would say, kind of uh, uh, importance. And that's all true. But he wasn't very important then. He was a nobody. He had just started playing for Sussex. He was a bit daft. He was a bit stupid. But we're talking about someone who has had their previous tweets trolled through by some maniac who's decided it's a good idea to go look for something just because they want to ruin this guy's career. I think it's wrong. Uh, I think it's kind of mean spirited. And I think, quite frankly, it's quite nasty, isn't it? Oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand. I don't want to live in a country where people are constantly twitching at the net curtains going, oh, look. 
they've got seven people in the garden. Let's call the police. Oh, look, they're having a party. Let's call the police. Oh, look, somebody said something horrible seven or eight or nine or ten years ago. Let's call the police. Get lost. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Uh, let's talk about uh, the weather, though, and let's talk about the beer, and let's talk about the going out, and let's talk about the economy bouncing back. Wish you were beer, is what it says on the front page of the Sun today, uh, because uh, Brits are down, bumper, downing bumper numbers of pints, 28 degrees on the beaches. Why are we waiting for a green list? Let's talk to Alistair Kerr, uh, who's Southwest Regional Representative at the Campaign for Pubs. Alistair, very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, Mike. Many thank, thanks thank for having goodness, me on. Thank goodness uh, you must be saying to yourselves in the pub business that people are finally able to come back in, uh, even though now they want to sit outside when before they didn't, when they couldn't go in. <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, I, I, I'm seeing, certainly in London, I haven't had the opportunity to be out and about in, uh, in parts down by the seaside, but I hope to be this weekend. Um, there's an awful lot of traffic now uh, in and out of uh, hospitality, and that must uh, warm the cockles of your heart. Yes, I mean, we, but we must not forget that hospitality and especially pubs are still in a very precarious state. I mean, I opened my pub up for the first time uh, this weekend, just gone. Mm. And uh, it was great to see people coming back in. But these, these restrictions are still crippling trade, uh, are still really putting a, a real serious economic uh, dampener on, on publicans' takings. And at the moment, it's great to see so many people. I think it was uh, on the first opening weekend back in April, about 10 million people flocked back to the pubs, which is great to see. But obviously, it'd be better when we can just go back to normality, when people can come up to the bar, when, you know, this table service malarkey, you know, all all these trade restrictions are gone, you know, because there is, as much as I enjoy going to the pub and you enjoy going to the pub and your listeners enjoy going to the pubs, at the moment, I, I, what I'm finding is there isn't much social enjoyment from it because mm. we've got all these restrictions, you know, restricting the whole point of pubs, which are a sociable uh, enjoyment. That's what that's what pubs are about. Yes. No, you're absolutely right. And and I, and I take that as, as, a, as a kind of a, a measure of, of how difficult things have been for you guys, because while, you know, yes, you are able to now make some money, you're not really making money as such. You're just kind of covering your costs, aren't you? Oh, absolutely, and I mean, with with the with these restrictions, you, you you have to put on extra staff to do the table service. You have to put, you know, extra you know, uh, extra investment on the onto the uh, in all this personal protective equipment, uh, making your businesses COVID secure. You know, publicans over the past year have invested thousands of their own money into making their businesses COVID secure, only to be told by a very unsympathetic government that no, you've got to close, and you know, you're the problem. And a, a lot of publicans, including myself and, and the campaign, of course, feel that this government has just scapegoated pubs for their poor handling of this pandemic. They've targeted the hospitality sector and they've penalised the third largest employment sector in the United Kingdom. And it's they're making a mockery of, of this. Yes, I think that's right, because, I mean, the one place that you could be absolutely certain of catching coronavirus was a hospital. But they never shut them down, <laughs> did they? Well, no, I mean, but obviously... You know, I mean, hospitals obviously play a, play a key role. But if you look at the Public Health England report, the hospitality sector was on the lowest uh, lowest risk to catching uh, COVID rate of infection. So, I mean, I think the, the, the real uh, point that we're trying to make across here is, well, where's the evidence to back up the toughest trading restrictions on record mm. compared to any other industry? Yes. So what will it mean for you? Uh, obviously, you will be absolutely um, gobsmacked uh, at the very least if June the 21st doesn't happen in the way that the government has promised it will happen. I mean, what's your fear of, of anything that won't happen on June the 21st? I 
there were reports yesterday in the Telegraph that the ministers were talking for potentially two weeks. And I think we've all just had enough mm. of this, especially publicans, especially, you know, just normal citizens who've just had enough of this. You know, there was no COVID deaths uh, the other day in right. this country, first time since the pandemic. Clearly, we are, we've got a very, very good vaccination program. Clearly, this country is well ahead of the curve on this. If there is an extension or a delay to this opening, I would, I personally think it's just ministers fl uh, flexing their muscles mm. a little bit and enjoying the power that they've got. They have to, they have to provide the evidence to say that it's necessary. If if it is necessary, then that's fine. But where's the evidence to back it up? I mm. really think that this government has to tread very carefully if it's considering in 19 days time, because you know. You're, we are ordering in stock. We're getting ready for a lot of people coming up to the bar. A lot of people have anticipation. They just want to get back to normal. You know, we all understand the huge gravitas of the situation. But at the end of the day, you know, the, the, the goalposts have kept on changing. You know, yeah. what was it? What was it a couple of months ago? Oh, to save Christmas. In November, it was, oh, we've got to save Christmas. And then in January, we've got to save Easter. Yeah. Oh, and now the, the goalposts keep on changing with no evidence. And you know, you can tell from my voice the frustration. Yeah. But that, this is just echoed across the hospitality sector, and I think pretty much the whole country. I yeah. think we're all just fed up. Oh, I think that's very true. And I've been saying, Alistair, and I, I'm, I feel really bad now because I wanted to have this kind of big feel-good thing about you know the beer running out mm. and people having a great time, and you know you you've really knocked it back into uh, reality for me because of course you feel the way you feel, and of course you say the things you say because they matter and the business matters and the whole industry matters and my feeling is that you know um people will make it happen because they just will you know and my i wonder if for example they say well we're not going to lift restrictions on june 21st in pubs you're still going to have to actually you know sit down and wait to give uh, your order to somebody on an app i don't think people will do it i think people will literally walk into the pub and go do you know what i'm going to go up to the bar and i'm going to ask for a drink and maybe uh, the people behind the bar will just say yeah okay uh, what do you want yeah, I mean, maybe that will happen. Obviously, you know, there are obviously licensing restrictions, and obviously every every publican has to be has to be careful. But you know, obviously, what we want is people to enjoy themselves yeah. and to come to the pub and, and enjoy it because a pub is not just a place to get alcohol and get a bit tipsy. It's a social hub. It's uh, it's pillars of the community. It's where people I mean, meet their future partners. It's all sorts of things. It's where people get jobs. Exactly. It's where people find friendships that last for a lifetime. You know. All of that, yeah, oh, absolutely. And I think a lot of I think a lot of government ministers have just forgotten the crucial role that pubs play in our communities and societies. I mean, two thousand closed last year mm. permanently. A year, the year before that, four hundred closed. You saw the, the you saw the huge jump in numbers there. Yeah. They are they are hubs of the community. I mean, I've spoken to old regulars from previous pubs who their mental health has just declined yeah. so much during lockdown, and they're just shells of informer selves. Mm. And I. It saddens me. Yes. But what, you know, to bring it back to the feel good factor, Mike, let's get people back in pubs because they are safe. You know, let's get people back enjoying themselves. We've got great weather, you know, great weather for this bank holiday, bank holiday weekend just gone and the week coming ahead. And I think, yeah, let's, let's roll on June 21st, you know, touch wood, it still goes ahead. And let's just, let's just enjoy. Mm. You know the freedom we're going to get, and that uh, that refreshing pint standing at the bar. That's what I, that's what I'm looking forward yes. to. Yes. No, me too. Absolutely right. And is there anything they could do, for example, on the 21st, which would fall short, perhaps, of letting that happen? Could they give you, you know, a bit more, lift a few more restrictions, but still keep the one where you can't go up to the bar? 
I think it's a case of if you, it's either do it all or not or do everything or nothing. You know, mm. I think these restrictions are just they are pain. They are crippling. You know, they are taking away valuable resources. They are costing more money to more struggling publicans uh, who received very little uh, financial support. Mm. Uh, I think these these restrictions fundamentally have to go and it, you know it's, you can't just reduce them gradually because there's no point what, what's the point in reducing you know you can't take away table service if you're yeah. telling people they can't go to the bar so there's still got to be that level so but i personally think that they've got to be removed uh you know from june 21st basically they, yeah. they've all got to go yeah and is there a danger of the beer running out i mean uh, I'm, I'm 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 always slightly skeptical when i see those kind of stories i always think it sounds like a good idea as an advert for heineken or whatever it is that whoever it is to say they're running well, out you know um but you're not going to run out of beer are you no i mean i think the, the the irony is that you mentioned heineken they had a beer shortage uh, uh, about a month or so ago ah. uh, but that was due to that was due to failure to anticipate demand which right. is you know, uh, perfect central. I don't. I don't think we're going to run out of beer. These are these are kind of sensationalised stories. Uh, I, there's a lot of breweries. I mean, we have two thousand breweries in this country of small independents and uh, and of big multinationals. Yeah. So I, I think we're going to have plenty. I think we're going to have plenty of beer. I think they're building up for June twenty first being a, a big kind of day. Mm. But obviously, you know, if if there is a delay, then obviously this pushes back all the production and all the investment that's gone into that. So. Uh, it, it's a it's a knife's edge really but no i i don't think we're gonna i don't think we're gonna run out of beer but if we do i, I think this country would do uh do very well to drink us dry <laughs> yes what a, what a great aim that would be alistair great to talk to you thanks yeah. very much indeed alistair kerr southwest regional representative of the campaign for pubs you know there has been a great deal of money spent in the business but as he just said uh, it's a drop in the ocean compared to what has not been spent over the course of the last year because so much of the last year uh, has been impossible to trade so many, many pubs, many, many uh, hospitality outlets, whether they be restaurants, whether they be cafes, whether they be places where people go and mingle and eat and drink. You know, this is a massive business. And I know that I bang on about it an awful lot. I talk about it an awful lot. But there's a reason for that, because it does create millions and millions and millions of pounds for the exchequer. It creates billions and billions and billions of pounds uh, for uh, the, the economy. It also employs hundreds of thousands of people. Um, and it also uh, is a very, very good business that people enjoy enjoying, if you know what I mean. So we need to get it back. October uh, is too late. Uh, we need to get it back in June. We need to get June 21st, standing at the bar, having a drink, enjoying yourself. I know a lot of people have said to me, I'm not going back to a pub until I can go back to a pub the way it used to be, where I can stand up at the bar, talking to my friends and ordering a drink. And I think that's understandable, but let's do it and let's make it happen. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk radio. Now, how about this for the stupidest tweet of the day, right? Bill White. Do you know how foolish you sound, Mike, when you suggest that an electric car has a range of 100 miles? The Tesla Model S has a range of around 390 miles. Does your car have a range equal to or greater than that? Yes, Bill, it does. When I fill up my Range Rover Velar, uh, it goes for about 450 miles on a tank of diesel, which costs me about 50 quid or thereabouts, right? The problem for you as well, Bill, is do you know how much the starting price of a Tesla Model S is? It's £74,000. Now, I don't think that is what you might call your average family car. Range Rovers aren't cheap, but they don't cost that much. The one I've got is about £50,000. grand is the starting price of an electric Tesla Model S. So if you happen to be very, very wealthy, you can buy one. But quite frankly, 
if you drive 490 miles, you better be very careful that when you get there, 390 miles rather, when you get there, there's a charging point at the end of it. Because in a lot of places, there isn't one. And then you'll be stuck. And you'll have to call Tesla to come and rescue you, put your car on a tow truck and tow you somewhere where you can charge it. That's the problem for you. So please don't say that I sound foolish because I'm afraid you've already got that particular crown. Thanks very much indeed. Let's talk to Helen Dell, writer, lawyer and political commentator. Helen, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. How are you? I'm very well indeed. I'm full of the joys of spring. Very happy to be here. Uh, oh, very... yes. I spent basically all day on Tuesday outside in the pub in isn't the sunshine. It, isn't it nice? <laughs> isn't, isn't the weather? I mean, you being from Australia, I mean, you must really miss the weather that, that, that is like this presumably all year round for you. Uh, yes, hi. Uh, that's one thing I do miss about Australia is the weather. And But there's an advantage to, I think, growing up as a child in, in Australia is I've got harder skin than people here locally. So when I go and sit out all day in English sunshine <laughs> at the pub, I just go very, very brown. Right. Whereas if I did the well, same as opposed thing to in red, Australia, like everybody else does. Yeah, yeah. Whereas if I did the same in Australia, in the morning, in the afternoon, I'm all right. But even me, and I naturally tan, mm. um, I can't sit out in the middle of the day. I just burn. Right. Even Australian Aborigines burn. And the, I, the number, we used to have a farm manager in, in North Queensland who was Aboriginal. And he used to, he would be with his big hat and under the tree in the middle of the day. And he'd go, look, stupid whitey on the tractor, not wearing a hat. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of thing. Yes. Because well, this is the thing. Burn. I mean, I used, to, I used to always look forward on a Monday morning in the old days before the pandemic, when you'd get on the tube and there'd be an awful lot of people with red marks all over them because they'd been lying around in Hyde Park on, on a Sunday afternoon. But mm, um, Toasting. Yes, quite. <laughs> but let's talk a little bit about uh, Twitter because it is one of our favourite subjects. We talk about it quite a lot. This morning we see uh, the papers are getting very carried away with the uh, sexist and racist uh, tweets sent out by a young cricketer by the name of Ollie Robinson, um, who's been somehow dug up uh, about nine years ago to have said some things which, which we're not going to repeat here, but which which are vaguely offensive, but not, you know, the worst thing I've ever read. But I wonder where these people come from that find this stuff. I mean, why do they bother? Well, the expression used to describe them comes from an American writer who's actually a socialist, So, but he just really, you know, so really quite left-wing, and it's been popularised in the UK by Toby Young, who is not a socialist. Yes. Um, and Freddie DeBoer is the American chap, and he calls it offence archaeology, yeah. which is where you go back through someone's Twitter feed or social media generally, because it has been done in the past, not just with Twitter. I've seen it done to people using Facebook. Mm. And that's particularly unpleasant because if it's not their official author account or sport, in the case of a cricketer like um, Ollie Robinson, he would probably have a fan page or something like that. If it's not an, an official page, it's just their personal page. And most people on Facebook use it to put up pictures of their cats and their right. kids and stuff like that. Right. And I, I have seen people even do offence archaeology on places like Facebook. It's just bonkers. Mm. And they go back decades. They go back decades. I mean, there is that joke. You, and I mean, it was originally popularised by Carl Benjamin, the chap who... Um, was the UKIP candidate where he put it out there sort of join Twitter, start tweeting 10 years later, surprise, you're yeah. fired. Right. <laughs> but, you that's know, what happens. Also, also, I mean, you know, lots of people say lots of things on Twitter that they probably shouldn't say. Um, and at the end of the day, unless you're being, in my view, particularly offensive about an individual and therefore putting yourself at risk of libeling somebody, um, 
you know, something that's this old shouldn't really matter, should it? No, I really have. I have a I have a problem with offence archaeology generally. Um, I have a real problem with offence archaeology when it is done to minors. So we've seen situations where 13 and 14 year old kids in who said something stupid on social media in the United States have got to the age of uh, I don't know what year that how old they are when they start university in America because over here it's like 18 or 19 they might be a bit younger but they're around about 18 and they've had their university places pulled from them on the basis that of something that they said when they were 13 or 14 or perhaps even younger one was 12. Now this chap this Ollie Robinson is right on the margins because he's 18 so he isn't a minor anymore but I think it's in combination with the fact that it's nine years ago, I mean, who knows any 18-year-old who doesn't have a brain the size of a peanut? Right. Exactly. I mean, 18-year-olds just have brains the size of a peanut. And it doesn't matter how clever you are or how middle class you are or anything like that. I mean, I might have been 18 and have four A's at A-level and all of this silly nonsense, but I assure you, at 18, I had a brain the size of a peanut. Mm. And also, I did it's not, not even, how to behave. and it's not necessarily so much about the brain size; it's about the judgment and the fact that you yes. don't have any. Well, yes. Why is it always young people who wrap their cars around trees? Why is it, you know, they're sort of riding the the bicycle down the hill? Look, bum, no hands. Look, bum, no mm. teeth. It's always the teenager. Yeah. I mean, only the other day I saw, and 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 before people go, oh, it's boys are worse. That is true statistically that they, they're worse. But always remember that the dangerous sport that girls like is even more dangerous than the dangerous sport that boys like because the dangerous sport that girls like is horse riding. Yes. So it's not like a BMX bike and it's not like a trail bike. It's an animal that is much bigger than you with a mind of its own. And part of learning to ride a horse is learning how to relate to an animal. And mm. we all know lots of girls love horse riding. Yeah. And yes, it's very dangerous. I've fallen off a horse and my my show jumping coach at the time said, Helen, you get straight back on again or you will never ride a yes. horse again. And that's fine you know, as so... long as you didn't actually hurt yourself to such an extent that you couldn't get back on again because that no, also happens true. to some people. But but I, yeah. I just think, you know, um, there is this, this kind of tendency now to look for something to be offended by, whether it's, uh, you know, 10-year-old tweets, whether it's something that somebody said in a speech two years ago. You know, there seems to be an industry built up around all of this. And I, I'm just not, I'm not sure Everybody is doing buying it. into it. Everyone is doing it. I have, I have seen people going through Joe Biden's historical speeches now, and that guy is a piece of the furniture in American politics. He's probably said something to offend everybody. Well, yes, exactly and right. You just, what is your point? Yeah, but so I really do have an issue with this. And but my candid advice, because it's not going to go away, is there are apps you can get that just delete all your historic tweets. Mm. You know, so delete everything that's older than a year, basically. And I know some people are, that are, the, who delete everything that's older than like a month. You know, they just delete all their historic right. tweets. Yeah. I mean, but the problem is the internet never forgets. And if you're a public figure, other people will find find out that you've deleted your tweets. Yes, but they have to go looking for it. I mean, presumably, oh, I mean, do. maybe maybe this guy, Ollie Robinson, has got a couple of enemies or, or an ex-girlfriend that didn't like him or something, you know, because somebody's dug him up. And I don't imagine yeah. why you would do it, because why would you assume that he had written something like that uh, and then go looking for it? I'm assuming that the, that the reason people thought that he might have been a bit mouthy or 
yappy on Twitter is because he did get in trouble at Yorkshire for being late to training all the time and this this kind of thing. But and he seems to be fine at Sussex, but he had trouble. He's had trouble at other clubs. Um, so in the county championship mm. for, for bad behaviour. And I suspect people thought, oh, there might be a story in here. But even that, you know, it's the classic case of, is this in the public interest yes. or merely interesting to the public? Mm. And this is a question that you've no doubt had to answer many times yes. in your life as a journalist. That's not, I know it's something that I've had to, to answer. In, in, I've had people come to me and say, can you write about this in the newspaper? Usually the Australian. I've had this happen yes. a couple of times in Oz. And I've just said, look, it may be interesting to the public, but I don't think it's in yes. the public interest. In, in actually, in this case, I don't think it's either. I don't think it's as of much interest to the public who are probably quite happy to be watching cricket again uh, without yes. wishing to, uh, having to withdraw people from the game because of something game. they said nine years ago. Uh, and also, I don't think the fact that he said it is particularly remarkable anyway. Well, no, it's sort of welcome to the world of 18-year-old yeah. people who... Ha have just finished school and in his case just starting out in a sporting career and mm. oh goodness i know i mean I, i'm trying to it, the people who do this i i suppose to my final comment on this is they have they were ne never children they were born old i mean my father used to use the expression you know the world's youngest old fogey yes you know you do wonder if if they were if they were ever children if they can ever remember what it is like to be a child mm. or a young person or an adolescent. Yes. Well, I find myself asking that question all the time now as I deal with my 16-year-old and my 14-year-old. And I remember what I was like when I was 16. Don't let them 14. go on Twitter. And you just go, well, yeah, well, certainly they're not on Twitter and there's no reason that they will ever be on Twitter. So we shall see. I think they, they think it's for old fogies. I think they're on TikTok more than they are on Twitter. But let's we'll talk about uh, let's talk about the migrant uh, situation because one of the problems that we seem to have concurrently uh, going on is no matter how many people come, no matter how many times Priti Patel says that they're going to send them back and they're going to make it harder for them to come and all the rest of it, as long as we are still signed up to the European Court of Human Rights, we aren't really going to be able to do much about it. So the question I've got for you, Helen, as a, as with your legal hat on, is how do we get out of being in the European Court of Human Rights? Well, the thing with... It's not just that. It's also general there are general principles of, of international law and i say law advisedly on this because there's quite a good case to be made that international law isn't mm. law it's a it's a form of international morality which is why countries quite regularly uh, including developed countries uh, like australia and new zealand just regularly breach it and nobody can do anything to them because there isn't an enforcement mechanism but the uh, european convention on human rights has nothing to do with the european union and when Britain left, and it's very important to remember this because a lot of people, leavers thought that it, it is. And whilst the principles are the same in the European Court of Justice, they've incorporated them into the body of law that exists for the ECJ. When Britain left Brexited, it left the ECJ, but it didn't leave the European Convention on Human Rights, which is from a different body called the Council of Europe and includes countries that have really do really are quite dodgy. I mean, like Russia is a member, for example, that kind of thing. And that's where the ECHR, the convention, comes from. Now, even if Britain were signed up to the convention, it wouldn't be that much of an issue if that's all that the country had done, because Britain has a dualist approach to international law, which is signing the treaty isn't enough. It has to be enacted into law 
in the UK, and it has been, unfortunately, in my view, in the Human Rights Act 1998, Mm. which I think should be repealed. But then I'm coming, I admit, out of an Australian tradition where I don't think it is possible to abstract rights from the democratic process. So I'm making a particular point as a lawyer here and lots of other lawyers disagree with me. Mm. I think rights are subject to electoral approval. I don't like them being directly voted on. In Australia, for example, there was a plebiscite on same-sex marriage, which I voted in favour of and my boss was a big promoter of of not the plebiscite, but of being in favour of same-sex marriage. Mm. But neither of us liked a plebiscite on it because it's directly voting on a minority's rights. However, I have no issue with parliamentarians doing that for the very simple reason that that's what we elect them to do. So, Providing, I suppose, that in that situation you can have another vote if you don't like the first one, because that's what parliaments also do, isn't it, where you get things reversed. So I suppose the setting up of a, of a set of human rights via uh, the European court, if you like, is, is mm. sort of over and above all that, isn't it? Well, that's the the that's why they do it. They abstract rights from the democratic process and from Parliament, which is an attack on the sovereignty of Parliament. I mean, the whole point of the sovereignty of Parliament in a Westminster system, and this is the mother of Parliaments in the in the sort of wider sense in the UK, is that Parliament can make or unmake any law. Hmm. So all of these rights instruments are an attempt to abstract to to, to take from Parliament. Uh, to chip away at its sovereignty and that's always been my criticism of entrenched rights instruments Mm. and it is why i i don't want a british bill of rights either because once again you've got the same problem it chips away at the sovereignty of parliament parliament can make or unmake any law and the thing is these things are just prey to fashion you know so whatever's fashionable this week and we've all seen the enormous fights between Uh, mermaids and the LGB alliance Mm. over this. uh, Mermaids are suing them because they don't like, because of the the, the issue with with charitable status. Mm. And the reason that 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 conflict has emerged between two charities, you know, all both properly constituted the Charities Commission and so on and so forth is because there's a conflict of rights. And the reason there has been a conflict of rights is because there has been this attempt persistent attempt to abstract rights away from the electorate and until that is addressed whether it's by Priti Patel or anybody else you're going to really struggle with this boats mm. across the channel issue right well we it's will difficult because to you because, oh, because, sorry, because apparently as soon as they are in the channel basically we are duty bound to accept them uh, when they get to British waters and, and until such well, time it's as because that they, it, it's because it, it's not duty bound it's because they claim refugee status and there is this idea with um, with refugee status uh, that that you can't. Uh, there's a principle known as non refoulement, where you can't just ping them back to the country of origin. Right. However, even the international conventions uh, in this area, like the Refugee Convention, they talk about the nearest safe country, yes. which is what Australia uses a lot. Now, I struggle to see how France is not a safe country. Right. What it is, and I'm this is very politically incorrect, but I'm going to say it, is France demands you fit in. 
That's a characteristic yeah. of the French state. You learn to speak French. You don't get to express your religious beliefs mm. with the same degree of freedom that you do in the United Kingdom. These are different countries. The French just have their own way of doing things. We have our own way of, of doing things. I'm not saying that theirs is better or ours is better or what, no. whatnot. I'm just but, pointing but, out but that equally, France Helen, is a different country. But equally, Helen, they end up in France, but quite often their first port of call uh, is either Greece or Italy, generally speaking, yes. if they're coming across the Mediterranean, which is where mm. most of them are travelling. Sometimes it's Spain. But in all cases, it is the first port of call which they could seek asylum in, supposedly, yes. under the law. That's and yet, what they're and yet, supposed that, to do. Yeah, yes. but why does that not seem to apply here then? Because they try to go, I'm sorry, it, you get more of what you subsidise and less of what you tax. Mm. And so they approach, they head towards the countries with generous welfare states. And because of austerity, neither Greece nor Italy have generous welfare states. Yeah. Germany, France and Britain do, comparatively speaking. Greece used to have a generous welfare state. Part of, part of staying in the euro and, and all, the part of the whole Greek crisis that happened was, a was austerity imposed on Greece. And it had to dramatically cut its welfare bill. And it also had to cut the size of government. It had to cut what government did. You know, you think the austerity that happened with George Osborne here was bad. I mean, the size of the Greek government was cut by 50%. Yeah, this is just extraordinary. And so they can't afford to, Greece can't af afford to, to be dealing with all of these immigrants. Mm. Uh, and they are Im immigrants, they're not refugees. Yeah. Um, and well, mostly they're economic migrants in many cases, yes. aren't they? And, and the thing is, as soon as it, it's an e economic argument, that falls under the normal laws of immigration, uh, which in Britain, having left the European Union, are not subject to free movement, so we can make whatever decisions we like. But the thing is, they claim asylum. They claim that they are refugees. And I mean, I know one of the things that happened in Australia was that they, the threat would be they would claim they were safe for a very, very war-torn country like Somalia or mm. Afghanistan. And the Aussie government was saying, oh, well, we don't want you. You can't become an Australian citizen because you can't if you turn up by boat. That's one of the rules. Because it's you illegal, have no yeah. opportunity. Yeah, you have no opportunity for citizenship. Uh, we'll just send you back to where you came from. And then the truth would come out that they weren't from Syria. Mm. They weren't but from this is the other Somalia. Thing that because they've they destroyed... were from Turkey or yeah. from Pakistan or, or something. Or they've yeah. destroyed their, their, their uh, papers or they've destroyed any ID they've got. So nobody really knows where they're supposedly mm. coming from. And they from. lie about their ages as well. I mean, yeah. there's been notorious in incidences where people are claiming to be 16 and you can test... Once again, OzGov, you can test very reliably someone's age through mm. their teeth. Yeah. And therefore, I mean, in some cases, they've been in their mid 30s. Yes, uh, I know. So it's, you get, it's, it's, it's a crazy, just it's a crazy situation. But I mean, I guess bottom line question, Helen: If we wanted to leave the European Court of Human Rights, even though it's nothing to do with the EU, could we just leave it and just say, right, cheerio? The, we're no the safest, in it. the safest thing to do is to have, I'm afraid, because these things need to be done properly, there needs to be parliamentary scrutiny, there needs to be an inquiry, a proper commons inquiry, there to find out exactly how this law is working and how it's being interpreted. And then there needs to be a conversation about either repealing it entirely or repealing it in part, particularly where it's having an effect on the ability of a elected government to implement mm. its manifesto promises, because that's what the people voted for. Yes. 
and, and, the, this and the people, is why you... and there's no question, and, and we're out of time already. I can't believe it, Helen. We've got to go, um, and and that is indeed what people voted for. One of the reasons people voted for Boris Johnson was, of course, to get Brexit done, but also to take back control of the borders, which we have not done yet, and which Boris Johnson needs to do in order to make it work, because otherwise people are going to get slightly peeved about all of that. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Right now, though, here's Bill Burris to talk about documentaries. Bill, very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. How are you? Very well indeed. Very well. Now, I, I feel as though we've sort of talked about My Octopus Teacher, but I only think we've talked about it about how you were going to talk about it. That's it. I set it up last time I was on. Yes. Um, you recommended another documentary, Stray, yes. which I'd watched and enjoyed. So it's a bit of an animal theme one. I like I'll take it. A, I'll take a break from the mob for, for a week and uh, <laughs> usual mayhem. <clears throat> But this is this is a fascinating documentary. I mean, we were brought up obviously with David Attenborough, who's the gold standard for documentary making about animals. So I think to a men of a certain generation, women of a certain generation, uh, and from a British mindset, this could be a bit smaltzy. It's about one guy, a South African guy, what he finds out about his life through an octopus. Now, octopi are so fascinating in themselves. It, for my money, it doesn't really need this extra bit, but there'll be people who buy into it because of that. But th- this guy basically is having a midlife crisis. Um, and he goes out off the uh, kelp forest, off the coast of South Africa one day, and he encounters this octopus. And the documentary is about how he goes swimming every day to find this octopus and what he learns about it. Now, the thing about octopi uh, that is so incredible is that you can trace back human evolution through most animals to where they actually branched off. Um, but like half a billion years ago, octopi is so different that people are still studying it. They're not quite sure where they came from. In fact, like if you go on Twitter, they'll advance the theory that it was uh, aliens who crashed in a spaceship and you know, they escaped into the water. But the way they can shapeshift when they're under threat and the way they can just change the camouflage mm. to suit the perfect, it's absolutely incredible. And they've got, they can learn how to unscrew a jar. They can learn things. They can use tools. And their brains are not where our brains are. Most of our brains are, anyway. The, uh, the, the Their brains are in the legs, you know. But there's right. so much stuff to find out about octopus and this guy as well. But like I say, it's a bit difficult if you're used to your, your Attenborough-type documentary, but um, absolutely incredible. Yeah, it really is extraordinary because they are these kind of uh, very mythical creatures for a lot of people. Because I mean, I've only ever—I think I've only ever seen one swimming in the sea once. I mean, I've obviously seen them in aquariums and things like that. I saw one once in Mallorca, and I couldn't take my eyes off it because the way they swim—it's just really cool to watch them. Well, it is, and they like the the called cephalopods or something that's that genre of um, species of, of animal. But it's the way he, he catches it playing with fish. They're not hunting fish. It's just indulging its opportunity to play with fish to mm. direct them in one direction and direct to another. They can move into a hole. The only limitation the size of the space they can get into is the size of their beak, which right. they have. You know, and they, it's just incredible. And, and this this shark at one point, everyone says, you know, there's a bit of a not exactly a spoiler, but they said it's a bit of a weepy. Mm. And in the trailer, you see it being attacked by a shark. So you think, right. oh well, thanks for that. But actually. That isn't the bit where he dies. You know, he right. does die. It's it natural lifespan. Yeah. But this do they not shark, live for a very long time or something as well? No, the, the biggest ones can live up to five years. But this particular breed, which is a common octopus, mm. uh, usually about a year. Oh, really? So okay. it's almost, he basically spends eighty percent of this octopus's life with him. But when you have this attack, this um, pajama shark attacks it. It rips off one of its arms, mm. one of its legs, and it grows back. Huh. And what they've done, what scientists have discovered, because this this documentary won an Oscar, so obviously it's put the octopus into um, the, the mainstream, and there's a lot of science going around it. And what they've decided is that, that 
they they decrypted the genome in 2015, 2016, and now they're looking at how these animals actually regrow perfectly, and it might help with amputations and difference for stem cells for humans. And in fact, this octopus has done the, its own species no favors whatsoever because scientists have decided that it's a it's a ripe area to investigate. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, it is, uh, I, I suppose, equally one of those things that uh, um, has em- sort of, you know, never-ending possibilities. Because, I mean, once you do something like this documentary, the next thing you might want to do is go f- looking for the giant squid of the South Pacific or something, right? Oh, yeah, you know, because it's been so fantastically successful. Mm. They'll already now be underway. There'll be three or four or five documentaries along a similar line. But, you know, we know so little about octopus that, you know, bring bring them on, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Did it um, make you, did it make you feel like you shouldn't be eating them? Well, yeah, a little bit, which is disappointing because I love octopus. I do too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I once I once bought one right at Borough Market and um, decided, you know, because I, I I can cook anything. Me, I'll, I'll take it home. I took it down to Sussex, right, and I'm not, I'm not allowed to bring another one because I put it in a in a pot. And it kind of expanded to a ridiculous size, and the, you know, because when you boil it, which you're supposed to do before you fry it, you're only supposed to boil it a little bit. And I boiled it sort of too long, and it sort of ballooned into something about the size of my head, you know, when it was <laughs> meant to be about the size of you know my fist. It was quite off-putting. <laughs> it, it was dead, right? Uh, yes, it was. <laughs> yes, yes. yes. That would be cruel. The, 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 it would be cruel. But they, what, what they have been doing with um some of the cephalopods that they've got that they're, they're experimenting on, they gave some of them extra MDMA, which is basically street name ecstasy. Yeah. And it had exactly the same effect on octopi as it does on humans. What, you, well, they became really boring. And then he went to raves afterwards. No, yeah, right. yeah exactly. That. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, that was great. That was fascinating. Uh, like I say, you can take or leave the, the added uh, human involvement, if you like. But for, for my money, it was just fascinating all around, really. No, exactly right. Let's talk about the stray one, because I just say, I, I saw a trailer for it. I haven't actually watched it yet, but it looked fascinating. It is. It's. Uh, it follows on from the... The Elizabeth Lowe made a film about cats called Katie in 2016. And so, like you were just saying, that was a massive success. Mm. And now she's done one with dogs. Um, and it's uh, the dogs in Istanbul yeah. and what they get up to. So it's not exactly sticking a GoPro on them and seeing what they get up yeah. to, because uh, that would just involve quite a lot of sniffing of the dog's bottoms. But they actually follow the dogs around at dog, dog hides with the camera and they pick up snippets of human conversations as they go along. Mm. And, um, you know, the, 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 these, this dog falls in with um, a group of Syrian refugees and kids over from Syria right. who are basically wasting their time living, sleeping on the streets, living rough and sniffing glue. And they kind of adopt this dog. And uh, they're not in it all the time. They come and go because the dog's journey just takes it wherever yeah. it wants to go. And it's quite an interesting looking dog as well, isn't it? I mean, because at first it looks a bit of a hard dog, but actually it's a beautiful dog. It is a beautiful dog. They look better than our strays. Yeah. Um, you get as many strays as you did when I was growing up. But it's a bit like our pigeons are all a bit deformed. and Yeah. You know, it's a really healthy-looking dog, and it is from a fighting breed, so it's quite a tough dog as well. Yeah. But um, it goes through its, its doggy life, which isn't that dissimilar from uh, early 90s Mansfield and Blackpool, yeah. really. Bit of a knee shaking behind the kebab shop. <laughs> um, uh, eating dodgy food, some fighting, the police yeah. moving it up. Very similar. Yeah, it's a, it's a great, it's, a, it's such a brilliant idea, I think. It's just one of those, it's so simple, you know. And, you know, I'm just watching the, the clip now and you, I, I, just want to, I just want to watch the whole thing. Well, it, it took two years to film, which is incredible because it's yeah. only 70 minutes long. It's not like, a, you know, a big four or five parter. Mm. 
and the, there isn't any real involvement other than the occasional um, epithet from. Um, so you there's know, no the real dialogue people. to speak of then. Only the human dialogue in passing, which is the usual stuff: right. love, politics, and it's an interesting time in Turkish politics mm. as well, with Erdogan taking over, and then the dog, um, the dog starts following a feminist march, <laughs> and then um, the, it's That's a female great. dog, and right. then at this. Uh, at one point, so the dog starts making love to this to this dog, right? And all the feminists on the march start castigating the male dog for not asking first. Really? Oh it's God! Got no consent in the dog world. Dear <laughs> exactly. Man. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, it's great stuff. I love it. Uh, dogs and octopus. Only here at Talk Radio would you get that from Bill Burrows. Bill, thanks very much indeed. Journalist, documentary addict. Where where can we find them, by the way? Uh, Amazon for Stray and Octopus on Netflix. Great. We shall go and go and go forth and find them. They're both, I'm sure, brilliant documentaries, and sometimes the simplest uh, ideas are the best, aren't they? Absolutely brilliant. Mid mornings with Mike Graham, Talk Radio. And so, welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. Here all the way through the day, of course. Mark Dolan will be here at four o'clock. Ian Collins will be here uh, just under an hour from now to tell us what's coming up on his show after one. Let's talk now, though, to Quentin Wilson, a uh, good friend of the show, motoring journalist, uh, because the old electric car uh, series of uh, conversations is still going on. It still hasn't really changed. People are still being uh, sort of encouraged to buy electric, but they're not really being given any great incentives for it. Quentin, a very good afternoon to you. Afternoon, Mike. Now, I mean, I know that you probably would quite like to drive an electric car. I mean, I wouldn't mind driving an electric car, but I'm having a bit of a row with a guy on Twitter telling me that the new Tesla Model S is the greatest car that he's ever had, and it drives 400 miles or thereabouts, 390 miles on, on a full charge. The trouble is, he paid 110 grand for it, which is all very well if you've got that kind of money, but it's hardly your sort of average family uh, saloon, is it? Yeah, look, you're making a good point here that electric cars need to be more accessible. And I've got a Model 3 Tesla, mm. but it's still 50 grand, which is beyond most people's budgets. And this this recent survey that came out, um, we've got to remember, it, it came from Halfords. Yes. And kind of quite interested in selling cars, parts, combustion engine car parts. And I'm I'm seeing, you know, this, this saving of 100 quid over three years. In my experience, and I've been driving electric cars since 2011, you do save a lot more than that. It, it's, it's at least two and a half grand a year in fuel. You save your road tax. You don't have any servicing at all. Think about that, Mike. Mm. You know, those trouser wetting bills you get from the garage. Um, and then there's the depreciation. The last Nissan Leaf I, I, I bought, I sold for more than I paid mm. three years later. This Tesla is, is making, because there's a shortage of Tesla, Tesla sold out in Q, Q2 already, that it would make more than I paid for it a year ago. So these things have to be factored in. I need to say right now, I am in no way connected to the electric car industry. I'm just saying what people need to know. Yes. But what about the downside of it, though, Quentin? Because it's all very well to say that all of those things are good. But what about when the battery runs down and you have to get a new battery? Okay, well, there is no data, Mike, at the moment that says that we're seeing the sort of battery degradation that people predicted five years ago, that cars would need new electric batteries at eight years. There are Teslas out there with 400,000 miles on the original battery. There are Nissan Leafs with 500,000 miles in taxi firms on the original battery pack, Chevrolet Bolt. So 
I have no data to support this, this, this view that batteries are failing prematurely because they're not. And if you get 400,000 miles out of an industrial, um, an internal combustion engine, you're doing really well as well, aren't you? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And probably not really. I mean, nowadays you might be able to. I mean, I had an old Mercedes M-Class um, that had something like nearly 300,000 miles on it, but it was getting to a point where you didn't really want to get stuck on the M25 in a traffic jam because otherwise it would overheat and you'd end up having to pull it over to the side, you know, and it was and it smelled yeah. like an old fish and chip van. More detail than we need, Mike. <laughs> but, you know, um, I think the point about electric cars, though, for me, is that still, uh, as much as people want to think that they're saving the environment, they're not really. I mean, if you want to buy one, great, but they're not cheap. Um, and you say that you will save money in the long run. But, for example, if you lease a decent car, if you lease a car that, say, would cost you £40,000 to buy, you're not really paying for much servicing because you're getting that uh, over the course of three years, you're turning it around, you're getting a new car after three years. Nothing much goes wrong in the first three years anyway. You can lease an electric car, but it's the same money, more or less, 400 quid for a Tesla. Yes, yes, but what I'm saying is if one of your advantages is that you're not paying for a service charge because, you know, know, if you buy a new car, you don't really need to service it much. Well, you do. You need to service it a couple of times a year, depending on what the mileage you're doing. But anyway. Well, you don't, um, actually. That's not true. I mean, I've, I've, I've got a leased car now, which is nearly two years old. It's had one service and it will get another one next year. That's not very good, is it? Why? Because <laughs> it's supposed to have an oil change quite regularly, you know, every year at least. Well, I mean, it doesn't need it, though. OK, well, I mean, there, there's a, there, two schools of thoughts on that, that it's. You know, you need to change oil on cars quite regularly, and the manufacturers tell us not to. But you know, it, w- whatever. Um, I'm, I'm saying that look, people need to look at electric cars because the tailpipe emissions are what we're talking about, not the carbon offset and all that sort of stuff. If we're making the air cleaner in our towns, particularly in London, where I know you are, then that's got to be a good thing. Forget about all this, you know, global warming stuff. It's the immediate benefit we can feel on pavement level by not driving a combustion engine car. Yes, except in London, the, the pollution is probably now worse than it ever was, thanks to Sadiq Khan and his cycle lanes. Yeah, we don't blame me for that. That's Sadiq Khan. We know <laughs> that, you know? Yeah, but I mean, what's... All right, let, talk to me about the proportion of electric vehicles being driven around on a daily basis in London, because I don't think there's many. And when you talk about commercial vehicles in terms of vans... Uh, that people have to use to work because that's their that their their office effectively. There isn't, I'm told, a particularly um, affordable electric van that's available yet. No, there isn't. I mean, there's the Nissan NV200, which is quite reasonable. The range is only about 100 miles. So we do need all these deliveries um, in electric vans, not diesel vans, and and that's something that we we need help to to, to create. And the thing I think we both agree on here. Mike, is the fact that the government really isn't doing enough. Um, They're telling us to drive electric cars from the back of a diesel people carrier, and they need to build an infrastructure. And really, I always say to ministers, have you got an electric car? Have you driven one? Do you own one? And the the inevitably, apart from one, Grant Shapps, is no. Well, Ed Miliband was great the other week, wasn't he? Ed Miliband was out punting for why we should all have electric cars. And when he was asked if he had one, he went, no. Until you've driven one and you know about the charge cycles and where you need the infrastructure, I don't think you should be commenting. It's as simple as that. But that's the other problem, right? I mean, I see an awful lot of charging points now in London, many more than I used to. There's a decathlon uh, not far from me that's got a whole load of charging points underneath the uh, in the underground car park. But there's huge swathes of the country that don't have any. And one of the things I would say to anyone who says, well, I can drive 350 miles in a Tesla, great. But if you get 350 miles to a place where there aren't any charging points... 
you're going to have to call Tesla and get them to give you a lift back to where you came from. I'd just driven 500 miles up to Northumberland in a Tesla and stopped twice and had a, a hearty breakfast, Mike, and it was it was great. But for people who aren't Tesla owners and who don't have that infrastructure, it's a real problem. Mm. We need to have many, many more charging points and they need to be ultra fast charging right. points as well. But also, what about if you live in a street where you don't have a parking spot? And so therefore you cannot put a charging point outside your house, for example, because you can't guarantee that you can park it there. 30% of UK households don't have on-street parking and can't charge their cars. You're right. But there are options like lamppost charging, which is coming in, although that is slow. Yes, but that's the point. My, 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 my point is, is that, you know, I'm, I'm not disinterested in getting an electric car. And in fact, I might indeed get an electric car the next time I get a car. But, you know, I would have to feel comfortable in knowing that I would not have to go out of my way to charge it. You know, I don't want to have to think about you know, waking up early to go and charge the car before I have to go and actually drive it somewhere. No, I have said to Boris Johnson that the whole country needs to be five miles maximum away from um, a rapid charging point. Yeah, but that's still too far. You know, when I have to walk out of my house in the morning, my car's parked there, I get in it, I drive it. I don't have to wait to drive it five miles away so I can so I can go somewhere else. You know what I mean? Uh, or you could have one at the supermarket. This is what we, we, we do. Yeah, but I don't live at the supermarket, Quentin. My point is, is that if I want to walk out of my house and get in a car and drive to another house or drive to my holiday home or do whatever I want to do, I don't want to have to go five miles to get to the car because that's where I have to charge it. You see what I'm saying? But if you could just zip in somewhere and, and grab a cup of coffee and a bun or whatever and I don't need any up. more buns. <laughs> <laughs> But, but, you know, anyway, this is my point is there's still, it seems to me, despite what your savings you say that you're going to make, that if you want to buy the equivalent sort of expensive car that would, say, cost me someone like 35000 you're going to have to pay a lot more for an electric car, aren't you? You're going to have to pay about ten grand more for the equivalent Tesla. Yes. And that's not something that many ordinary people could afford to do. So if you want to make it into a mass... Um, sales event effectively so that everybody is going to be driving an electric car you're gonna to have to make them a lot cheaper surely you've got to make them a lot cheaper that's the economies of scale but the government should be helping in scotland they do interest-free loans on electric cars now what a good idea that is you know and let's stimulate the the, the uk motor industry where they get the well, money for that well that's a good question i'm not a politician well the government gives you an interest-free loan yeah, you'd have to ask Nicola oh, right. about that. Okay, Obviously. as long as you don't drive to England, I suppose you'd be all right. No, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> and have they got a better infrastructure of charging points then? They, they they do as well. But let's not go down that Scottish rabbit hole, Mike. I'm not trying to go down the rabbit hole. I'm, I'm just trying to get. I'm just trying to get you to convince me why I should have an electric car. So far, you're not doing it. Well, look, uh, uh, they for me, it's great. It works really, really well. But I'm lucky because I've got a Tesla and I've got this charging infrastructure that's just there. It's brilliant. And I get 270 miles to a single charge. Um, and it's it's wonderful when you don't have to go to petrol stations. You don't have to think about opening the bonnet at all for anything ever. Um, and it's a kind of it, it gives you a feeling of liberty. Hmm. Well, I'm the same. I mean, I'm the bonnet to put in um, a, a, what do you call it? Windscreen washer. That's all. And, I've yeah, had, well, and that's in the last that's the last five years. I've had two cars, one for three years. I had a Jaguar F-Base. Now I've got a Range Rover Velar. All I do is open the bonnet to put the put the windscreen washer in. Both very very reliable cars. Never let anything go wrong. Um, you know, and, and and so I don't I don't find pulling petrol into it or diesel into it to be a difficult problem. Well, that's great for you. And I find that I don't have to put petrol in, and it's liberating. It really is great. 
And look, we may not agree on this. I think what we ought to do, Mike, is arrange for you and I to have a little drive together. Okay. You come out in my Tesla. Yeah. Well, can I drive? I mean, I, I'm happy to. I mean, I, 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 funnily enough, I was booked to my, my, my daughter actually booked me a Tesla test drive, but I couldn't do it in the end. Uh, so we had to cancel it. But so I keep getting emails from them uh, offering me cars to test drive. So I guess, I mean, I've got no doubt about I mean, I've been in a Tesla. I've been, I've been in a Tesla before and it was very comfortable and it was quite weird because it was so quiet. And I wasn't really quite sure how to react to that. But I'm sure, and everyone I know who's got one raves about them. But they're bloody expensive. I know. And we're hoping that they're going to come down. Mm. But for you to really understand this whole electric car debate, you need to, to come with me. We'll drive. We'll charge it up and see how quickly it tapes. We'll have a bun. Right. Uh, and then we'll talk about it on the radio. OK. That sounds like a plan to me. We can we go somewhere nice like France. Yeah, why not? <laughs> <laughs> what is, what's it like in Europe? Are they any better? Oh, I've got a house in France, so uh, it's brilliant because the, 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 the auto routes are just covered with chargers. Ah. I mean, much better than here. Right. So you could do, do France with three stops for charging. Okay. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner then? Yeah, absolutely, Excellent. mate. Looking forward to it. All right, fine. Well, okay, talk to my people and we'll sort something out. <laughs> Great. For Quentin Wilson, thank you very much indeed. Motoring journalist there, giving us the whys and wherefores of why uh, and wherefore uh, electric cars are better. I'm sure electric cars are great. I've got no argument about the fact that they're not great uh, in, in sort of uh, uh, endeavours, that they're not great inventions, that they don't work terribly well. But they're very expensive. Uh, there's nothing to do with saving the planet because of the way that they have to mine the lithium to get the, uh, the batteries working. He says there's no data yet on battery length and how long uh, the batteries last. He says they last a long time. That may well be. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, don't tell me uh, that spending £110,000 on a Tesla is worth it because I don't think I would want to spend that kind of money on a car. And if you want to buy a decent Tesla rather than the cheapest one, you're going to spend at least 60, maybe 75,000 quid, which is ridiculous money for a car for anybody who works for a living, isn't it? Convince me otherwise. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.